Leviticus chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 21. We're going to dig into a couple different features about the altar. Um, Exodus 27, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 27, describes the altar. It repeats itself. Like I said, God often repeats himself regarding the tabernacle. Here in Exodus 38, he lays it out exactly like he did in 27. And five times in each of those chapters, he mentions the term brass connected to the altar. So it's important. It's worthy of our study. Uh, as you'll see, as, we, as that altar was constructed of brass, it was made out of wood, but then it was overlaid with brass. And then, of course, all the instruments that belonged to the altar that did the sacrificial work, it was all made out of brass. Why brass? In fact, there are only two instruments in all of the tabernacle that were made out of brass. Is the altar and the laver of brass that we're going to read about uh, in the next coming uh, couple weeks. So it's interesting that brass is connected to judgment. So when you read about brass in Scripture, you're going to re- it's going to be connected to some degree to the judgment or judge or judgment. And so that's why I think it's important that we study this out carefully. So I'm going to go to our first illustration in Revelation chapter 1. I'm just pulling verses out of the actual context of the Scripture, but you could read it on your own. But here it's describing Christ as the judge. He's in the midst of His churches. He's going to uh, pronounce judgment on His churches as well as commendations, but He's judging His churches, the seven churches. And we read under here this connection with brass once again. His feet like undefined brass as if they burned in a furnace. So clearly the brass is connected to fire here. Just like the brass in the altar was connected to fire. And once again, it's a picture of Christ as the judge. Now, it's interesting as you read the rest of the verses in Revelation about Christ being the judge, you'll notice He has eyes as a flame of fire. He has a countenance like the sun. So three three references to fire. The feet like fire. The eyes like fire, and the face like fire. Because the countenance is like the sun, which is a ball of fire. And I can't help but think about when I study that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, every man's work, not the man, this is the judgment seat of Christ as a believer, for the believer, every man's work shall be made manifest. didn't say the man, it said the work. For the day, the judgment seat of Christ shall declare it, the work. And it, the work, shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall, shall, and the fire shall manifest every man's work of what sort it is. That judgment seat of Christ is not for your sins. It's not for the believer's sins. That's been addressed at the cross. This is for the work you did in the body of Christ. And that's why it says very carefully, it shall be revealed by fire. So when I think about what is this fire, people always go, are we going to go through the fire? Yes. But the fire, I believe, is a reference to Revelation 1 is Christ is the judge because three times fire is mentioned. Eyes is a flame of fire, a face is a flame of fire, and feet like fire. We're going to be standing before the one who sees all. And he's going to really judge 
your work for the quality and the content and the motive. We can't judge motive, but God can. And so it's really important to see that going back to the fact that brass is mentioned in the midst of judgment. Once again, brass is always going to be connected to judgment and fire, by the way. So the next time we read, a better, maybe even a better illustration is in Numbers chapter 21. Well, I'm going to have you turn there. Numbers chapter 21, we'll kind of briefly go over this. I'll try to summarize it for you. Most of you are familiar with this. Uh, Israel uh, really struggled to trust God. It's no different than God's people. They just, when they get in a bind, they tend to just whine about things, complain about things, and they always start questioning God. You ever got yourself in a bind, and you just start to question, can God take care of me? Can God take care of my problem? Can God do this? We, we tend to be in that type of situation. Well, Israel's no different. And when they got there, they, they've seen all the miracles and power of God, and they're in a situation where they start complaining and whining, has God take us? He put us out in the wilderness. Can He provide for us food? Can He provide for us water? Can He provide for us, you know, He's just putting us out here to kill us. And God got tired of that, and He said, I've had enough. In Numbers chapter 21, we're going to see that God declares judgment, He executes judgment, but then He remedies the judgment. And so in Numbers chapter 21, clearly beginning in verse 6, the Lord sent, there's the judgment, the fiery serpents, and the people, and they had bit the people, and people died. Verse 7, they, they confess, they've, done some, they've sinned against the Lord, and they've prayed and asked God to remove this, this, uh, this judgment. In verse 8, the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole. So when Moses goes to make the fiery serpent in verse 9, he says, Moses made a serpent of brass. That's important. So when, God, when he goes to declare judgment on God's people, instead of God's people, he does it upon the serpent of brass. So the serpent of brass basically replaces the judgment or, takes, or incurs the judgment of God. Clearly, the judgment of God falls on the, the brass serpent. So, the judgment of God falls upon the brass serpent. It's, it's really, God's judgment falls on, well, in this case, it's not the innocent. The serpent's not innocent, but God removes the guilt and places it on another. And God judges, in this case, the serpent. But it's interesting, when God makes, or when Moses makes it, he makes it out of brass. Once again, the judgment of God. By the way, have you ever wondered why the serpent? I know it was the fiery serpents, but why the serpent? Because there's another reference to the serpent later that's important. Keep that in mind. So the judgment of God fell upon the brass serpent instead of the people. Just like the judgment of God fell upon the animal sacrifice at the brass altar. Once again, the judgment. And, and, and by the way, that fire never went out. Remember we studied that? It's interesting because why God chose that metal is because that metal endured the fire. That's important. That metal was able to endure the fire because that fire never went out. So it had to be a metal that wouldn't melt, that would continue to deal with the fire. And that really was a picture of God's wrath. So when we go forward, we know that the judgment of God for sin fell upon the Lamb of God, 
Just like the brass serpent, just like the animal sacrifice at the brass altar, it fell upon the Lamb of God. You remember these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he was in the garden said, let not this cup pass, that was what he was talking about. He did not want to be separated from the Father for the judgment of our sin. But God said, you've got to go through it. And that's why the man, Jesus Christ, cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He, he experienced separation for the first time in eternity because of our sin. The wrath of God fell upon him, which should have been our judgment. Just like that brass endured the fire of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, endured the fire of God's wrath for our sin. How do we know He endured it? Because He rose again. The evidence is He rose again because He had no sin. So the judgment of God, in this case we're talking about types in the Old Testament, brass, brass, the judgment, and Jesus Christ would be taking the place of that fiery serpent. Which I always found interesting when he goes to talk to Moses, and a doctor of the law who understood clearly the Old Testament, but missed a lot of what it meant, the spiritual significance of it. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent, Nicodemus, in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So we say to ourselves, why did Christ reference Himself as the serpent? The Son of God the sovereign king who created all things just likened himself unto the serpent. Why? Because the serpent, in Genesis 3, Revelation 29, the old serpent, represents sin itself. And so Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to become sin, just like that serpent represented sin, and I'm going to take the judgment for that sin, but I'm going to be declared righteous without sin. So we see here that Christ becomes our sin bearer. And the Bible says clearly in Romans chapter uh, second, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for he, God the Father, made him Christ's Son to be sin for us. And that's why he took the wrath of God, but he endured the wrath. Just like the brass endured the wrath or the fire. Jesus endured the wrath of God. He's the only one who could ever endure the wrath of God. I mean, you couldn't get a thousand brilliant minds over thousands of years to put all this together and have it all fit hand and glove perfectly. There'd be so many contradictions and variants, and yet here it flows perfectly through the ages preserved for us how God kept all these types and and these figures and these illustrations perfectly for us to look back and to look forward. Amazing. For God, the Father made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And as a result, He rose from the grave, and now He gives us His righteousness, or without sin, of God to us. So we get the gift of God, the righteousness of God. What a beautiful story. I, I've studied this. For 37 years, I probably mentioned this verse, and you've probably heard this verse as a believer. As long as you've been saved, you've probably heard this verse hundreds and hundreds of times. 
How is it it never gets old? How is that? I mean, I've sat through, you know, things at work. And I've heard the same thing about business. And I am bored out of my mind. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. But when I hear something like this, I said, man, is that refreshing. As often as I've talked about it, as often as I heard it, it's still refreshing. Why? Because it's supernatural. It's like the Holy Spirit, every time we talk about it, stamps it and says, that's right. That's right. That's about my son. That's about Jesus Christ. That's just, that's supernatural. That's, oh, there's no other way to explain it. But Christ was our sin bearer. This is a beautiful segue into Leviticus chapter 1. So we'll turn our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to park here for a while. You can't study the altar without studying Leviticus chapter 1. They can't st- really need to be studying the book of Leviticus in, in, in whole, but Leviticus 1 is a good place for us to summarize why the altar and all the sacrifices were important. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this. By the way, Leviticus is more, nothing more than an instruction manual for God's people here, Israel, in the case of Israel, to learn how to, or to teach them how to obey God, how to worship God, and how to love God um, through the, the sacrificial system. It was really meant uh, to serve Him as a holy God. And Leviticus, as you read through it and study it, is replete with illustrations and figures about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Leviticus 1 is loaded about that, and it is connected to the brass altar. So one of the things, if you read in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, you're going to read this term, and this occurs, by the way, 54 times in Scripture. In chapter 1 of Leviticus, it occurs three times. So 54 in all of Scripture, but three in one chapter. Verse 9 says, of sweet savor unto the Lord. In verse 13, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Verse uh, 17, a sweet savor of the Lord, Leviticus chapter 1. So every time the sacrifice was given, when it was done with the right heart, it would bring to God a sweet-smelling Savior. We don't, that's a term we use often just in, the, in our, our circles as a pleasing aroma. I thought about it, I was, I was studying this. One of my favorite days is Thanksgiving, Turkey Day, right? You fill that house, you get that turkey going around 10, 11 in the morning. And you know you got four or five hours of that turkey. Some of you go six and you know why it's so dry. you gotta, you got to hit the right mark. But four to five hours, that turkey, the whole house fills with the smell of turkey. All of us have favorite smells. We also have smells we don't like, we don't appreciate. And I'll talk about all that in a minute here. I want you to keep that in your mind when God references the term sweet-smelling Savior because it's connected to something. So keep that in mind. But again, pleasing aroma to God. As we look in Leviticus, in chapter 1, verse 2 through 5, you're going to read this, this, this language. It says, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer, notice, and this is consistent through Scripture, a male without blemish. When Exodus, when they were given instructions, they were supposed to take a lamb of the, of the flock, a first uh, of the flock, it had to be a male without blemish. Now, we studied the lamb last week because it pictures Jesus Christ. If that's true, and we know that to be true, then we read 1 Peter chapter 1, but the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish 
and without spot. Again, just means without sin. So that sacrifice had to represent something that was without sin. Of course, in the Old, in the Old Testament, that sacrifice represented something innocent. The guilty passing on to the, to the innocent. In the New Testament, it's the guilty passing on to the righteous. Christ was innocent, but He was also righteous. That's why the Lamb in the Old Testament was temporary. God provided a one-time sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 10, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So that's why you constantly see the language without blemish, without spot. Very important. As you contrast this with Revelation 13, I thought this was interesting, and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is represented as the beast in Revelation 13. In verse 1, he's a leopard. You ever wonder why God, when God goes to describe the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, all that opposeth and exalteth God, he likes him to a leopard. The leopard is full of what? Spots, the very opposite of the Lamb of God who is without spot. Not only that, but the Antichrist will appeal to all nations, all people, because he'll deceive the whole world. What's the colors of a leopard? Yellow, white, and black. It represents the three races. Japheth, Shem, and Ham. The three races that will appeal to all races was likened to a leopard, but this Messiah that they'll claim to be the Messiah and worship as the Messiah will be the false Messiah. He'll be the lamb, or he'll be the leopard with spots, not the lamb without spot. Interesting. And then I, I, I dug deeper into thinking about this, how this, con, how this is much represented by us as believers. We, we are the reflection of the Lamb of God. If the Lamb of God was without spot, we represent the Lamb. We're to live a life as, without spot. We're to live a life, well, we know we have sin. We know we deal with sin, but God wants us to walk not in sin, but not without sin. And so it's interesting if we read in Ephesians 5 that He, Christ, might present to Him a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And then it says that it, the church made up of believers, should be holy and without blemish. How interesting is that? That we reflect the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot. Very opposite of what Satan and sin is all about here so the leopard, again, represented sin. So, the next thing is besides it was without, to be without blemish, or without spot, it was voluntary. Let's read in verse 3. And if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle. God did not force them to do this sacrifice. What God wanted from them was their heart. The sacrifice isn't really what meant anything to God. It was the heart that came with the sacrifice. Such an important study here on being voluntary. We just read that. The sacrifice offering was only as good as the condition of the heart. Man, this I could spend the rest of the, this morning talking about this subject alone. We're going to park here for a couple minutes just to think about the idea of our volunteer, our work, and our service to God always ties to the condition of our heart. 
This is what happened in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The church of Ephesus was commended by the judge as being a church that was able to point out the false apostles. They had done good things. But then he says, I have somewhat against thee. Thou has left thy first love. So they were going through the motions. They were doing the job, but they weren't doing it with their heart. They didn't have the love anymore that they once had for God. I don't know if it was routine. I don't know if it was boredom. I don't know what happened, but God said, you got to repent and fall back in love with me because I want your heart. I don't want your motions. I don't want your service. I, I want your heart. Then everything becomes a sweet-smelling savor. But if it's not from the right heart, God doesn't want it. It's not as pleasing aroma to Him. And so we see here, it's a heart condition. Scripture that tells us this. There's so many verses, but I've picked a couple. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You know, the, I think it's Jeremiah 17, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We don't even know our own heart sometimes. But God says, I try the reins of the heart. God is the one who searches the heart and brings it forth. Now that's a prayer. God, show me my heart. Am I really in love with you? Is my service and my work and my desires really about you and for you? Because back to 1 Corinthians 13 or 3:13, he shall the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. What sort means the quality and the motive by which we did it. Did we do it out of love and desire? Like the poor widow that threw the two mites into the, into the offering. where Remember, the Pharisees were bringing the bags of wealth and dropping them. And God said, I don't want that type of offering. But she puts two in because she gave her heart. That's what God was interested in. It's always about the heart. The people honoreth me with their lips. But oh man, may God help us not to be in this category. But their heart is far from me. They go through the emotions, but their heart is not in it. Have you ever been there? Come on. You've been saved long enough. You've been here. You know what this is like. You just sit there and you, God, I'm cold. I don't feel it. I, wanna, I want to do it, but I'm just not there. And you beg God to help you, and He will. It's not can God. It's God can. It's always that. Can God is, a, is an act of unbelief. Can God do this? No. That's not what God wants. God wants to hear God can, which is an act of faith. God can help me. He can fix my heart when it gets cold and routine and out of love. But it's always about the heart condition. As we sacrifice to God, God wants that heart to be in the right condition that when it comes up to Him, that sacrifice, like the animal sacrifice, becomes a sweet-smelling Savior. Gives a pleasing aroma to Him. In Ephesians 5, verse 2, it says, walk in love as Christ also loved us. So we're to walk in love as Christ also loved us and have given Himself, it's an example, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. So what Christ did was a sweet-smelling Savior to God, and He says we're to do the same to, before God as a sweet-smelling Savior. 
But we have to be careful with our sacrifices. Because in Malachi 1, verse 8, that's a book on apostasy, by the way. If you want to read about where people's condition, the heart condition, Malachi is a great place. Now, God preserved for him always a remnant of people who, who will stay faithful to him. And that's Malachi as well. But the general population fell out of love, doesn't want anything to do with God. But they were still worshiping God. They were bringing their sacrifices to God, but they were bringing the blind, the, 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 the lame, uh, the sick. They were bringing the wrong sacrifice. They didn't care anymore. So i got to bring a sacrifice. It's that time of the year. I, you know, this one's deaf, blind, and I'll just throw it on the altar. And God says, I, I see that. He said, if, would you take that to the governor? Would you take that to your king? Would you take that to the president if you got an invite? You, you know you wouldn't do that, but why do you do it for me? Because your heart's not right. And Isaiah 65, verse 5, talks about the, the holier-than-thou attitude. I've been there too. Get a little self-righteous, you know, start condemning others, looking down as they have, they don't do this. That's a dangerous road to be on. God says this about that sweet aroma. He says the opposite in 65. He says the holier-than-thou attitude is a smoke in my nostrils. And anybody's had smoke, it's, it's annoying, irritating, and it's, it's a horrible moment. And yet God, that's what God says, the holier-than-thou attitude. So it all comes down back to the heart because God says, I, I'm not going to force you to do this. I want you to do this. It's got to come from your heart. Going to church is, doesn't mean anything to God. No, it's important. But it doesn't mean anything if you left your heart back at home in the world. Coming to church with your heart to desire and worship God is what... He says, man, and when you get enough people collectively with a heart that wants to worship God, He moves. He works. His power is manifested because it's, it's a pleasing aroma to Him. So it's always back. The sacrifice will always be back to the heart condition. That's why it was voluntary. And it was to be without blemish, without sin. Because our sacrifice, we can't have sin. I'm preaching, aren't I? i got to stop. We can't have sin in our lives and then think we can turn around and just worship God. we got to get the sin right, then worship God. That's why it's got to, we got to be a church without spot, without wrinkle, holy, without blemish. We've got to represent the Lamb of God. All right, enough of that preaching. Can't help it. I've never figured out how to teach and preach. It's, I mean, just it goes all over the place. That's okay. So we're going to, in Leviticus chapter 1, here, this is, I, I, I think this is really the, the crux to everything we're studying right here. It's the, whole, it's the heart of the altar. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, I'm going to summarize. He shall put his hands, that is the Israelite, would take the, the animal sacrifice that was supposed to be without blemish, a male, with the right heart, he's to place his hands on that. In this case, a lamb, it could have been a pigeon. could have been a bull. They had all kinds of animal sacrifices, but... Um, God asked them to put the hands on the animal at the head of the offering, and then you're to, after you do that, you lay your hands on that animal, you're to kill it, they would kill it, and then they would bring the blood, they'd, they'd sprinkle it upon the altar, they'd, they'd, they'd uh, slice up the, the animal, then they would lay, down, lay the animal sacrifice or the uh, meat upon the altar as a, as a burning sacrifice. It was quite violent. 
It was bloody. How'd you like to have to do this all the time? I mean, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, man, year after year they'd have to do this as a remembrance of their sin. Like, oh man, here we go again. No wonder they stopped, they fell out of love. It's just they got tired of it. It's like, it's just, all right, put your hands on. All right, take, the, take it, you know. And then they started bringing the sick ones. I don't care anymore. That's where danger enters into the believer's life if they get into that rut. Why? Because this, I believe, is one of the most pivotal, important doctrines in all the New Testament. It's the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Now, most of you are familiar with the very uh, subject here, but we're going to go through it just as a restudy. Is imputed righteousness basically the transfer or attributed or ascribed? So you're transferring something from yourself to something else. So when they laid the hands on that animal, they were basically transferring their sin to the animal. The guilty to the innocent. Remember I said innocent before? They, that was not a righteous animal. That was an innocent. Christ was not only innocent, but He was righteous. And he, His sacrifice was once and for all. These sacrifices had to be continual because they never satisfied God. But they temporarily satisfied God. So there they transferred their sin unto the animal. I think I'm going to have to stop there. Yep. So we're going to get into this imputed righteousness next week in Romans chapter 4. And we'll go into great detail. And then we're going to end with an illustration, one of the greatest illustrations in all of Scripture. And it's in the Old Testament of all places of imputed righteousness. It's incredible what God has laid out for us. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for uh, encouraging us, helping us, Lord, in your word. We pray you bless now. Open our eyes to the truth. Help us, Lord, to, to worship you in this next hour in truth and spirit. May the spirit of God work. And, and draw us closer to you as prices lifted up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.